This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. By just peering through them, almost like through a keyhole, into this much larger story that just opened and opened. And so the book condenses this 25-year journey for me into a, you know, unreasonable 300 pages of uh, adventures and misadventures and science, travel, natural history. Uh, you meet a lot of interesting people along the way, some of whom are living, some of whom were alive in the 19th century, some of whom were alive much longer ago than that. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We are overjoyed to welcome back to the show Jonathan Myberg. You may remember that he came on to talk about his band Shearwater. He is a musician who has been playing with that band for a number of years. He's also part of the band Loma. But in 1997, Jonathan Myberg also received a Thomas J. Watson Fellowship to spend a year in remote communities around the world. And that was a journey that sparked an enduring fascination with islands, birds, and the deep history of our planet. And so he's back to Today to talk about a recent book that he has written called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. Jonathan Myberg, I am so happy to be with you and thank you for coming back to Things Not Seen. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be back with you. So I want to start in an odd place. About halfway through the book, there's a scene that really stuck with me. You're down in Guyana, which is down in South America. You're on a river with a couple of other folks and you all are fishing. And at one point, the fishing line gets pulled out and a piranha flops on the deck in front of you. And I'd love to start there and help my listeners understand what are you doing in Guyana and what is that piranha doing in front of you? And let's start there and then we'll dig into what all this means. Guyana is one of the, they're called the Guyanas, confusingly, even though their names are Guyana, Suriname, and French Guyana. They're three small countries on the shoulder of South America in the Northeast that are sandwiched between Venezuela and Brazil. And they don't fit very well into the popular concept of Latin America because the languages people speak there are not Spanish or Portuguese. Guyana has English as its official language as a colonial legacy of Britain. Suriname has Dutch. And French Guiana is still, believe it or not, part of France. They use the euro. They speak French. If you cross the border from a range of remote mountains in northern Brazil, you can enter the eurozone and also be eaten by a jaguar. So they're an unusual uh, part of the of the world. And they also have some of the most intact tropical forests in all of South America, in the southern parts of these countries. And so for my book, 
which traces these unusual falcons. Uh, it's a group of the falcon family that lives almost entirely in South America called caracaras. And they're sort of more like if you built a crow on a falcon chassis. They're social, they're clever, they're inquisitive, they're omnivorous. Uh, they're not at all what you think of when you think of a bird of prey. There are 10 species that are spread throughout the continent, but there's one everywhere you go. Now, the one that's sort of the MacGuffin of the book, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little later, it lives down at the far southern tip of South America, almost all the way to Antarctica. But in the tropics, there are some tropical caracaras that are very, very weird, including one called red-throated caracaras, which eat almost nothing but wasps' nests, live in family groups of multiple individuals, multiple males, multiple females. They raise one chick at a time. They nest in giant bromeliads hundreds of feet above the forest floor, and they act almost more like primates, like they kind of get together in a troop and roam around the territory and, and perform these elaborate dances and screaming displays against anything they think of as an intruder. These are the birds that I wanted to see for this part of the book. And to see them, I went up this river called the Rewa in southern Guyana into one of the remo most remote forests in, in all of South America in terms of human access to it. And I went with four extraordinary people a Canadian scientist named Sean McCann, who had studied these birds in neighboring French Guiana, and then three extraordinary Amerindian men from the area named Josie George, Brian Duncan, and Rambo Roberts. And we were in the river there because we were fishing with them after a couple of days of, of heading up the river in a little motorboat. And we'd made camp and we wanted to catch dinner. And I'm really not much of a fisherman. I don't really like killing animals in particular, although in this case we did need to eat. And there are a lot of fish in the Rewa. It's basically a, a virgin river in many ways. I mean, it's so full of fish that you can drop a hand line in the water and pull up several, usually within a few minutes, of size ranging from, as you see in the book, this large black piranha that is the first one that I see that plops up into the boat and is unexpectedly a, a very beautiful fish, to things like uh, these vampire fish, which look like a shimmering uh, silver blue salmon type fish if it had a face full of giant teeth to 200 pound catfish these three things called aymaras that are a wolf fish that looks like a coelacanth and one of the lessons of the book was that this is not an unusual river in any way there's nothing magical about it there's nothing special about it it's just that it hasn't been fished out by people for hundreds or thousands of years and you start to realize in places like this and in other places I visit in the book in South America that the entire world was like this not very long ago. Fishing was easy. Hunting was easy. The people who came over the Bering Strait about 15,000 years ago to became the, who were the ancestors of all Amerindian people walked into two continents where animals had never seen anything like them before. And in places where people are still very scarce or places like the Falklands, you can still get a sense of what these interactions might have been like. And it's like opening a door into the dream time or something. It's just extraordinary. And that's one of the places, both um, physically and, and spiritually, that the, that the book lives in. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jonathan Myberg. You may know him as the frontman for the band Shearwater and one of the collaborators for the band Loma. But today we're talking about his recent book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey.
Well, and let me help to orient the audience to you, because if they're familiar with you from your music, they may not realize that for most of your adult life, you have been intentionally traveling to the most remote areas of the earth. And so this episode on the Rio River is one moment when you're in a very remote space that is not really touched by human habitation. But you've been going to these kinds of places for multiple decades. How did you get involved in going to these really extreme environments? (laughs) Well, after I graduated from college, I was an English major. I got this strange traveling fellowship called the Thomas J. Watson Fellowship. And the Watson Fellowship allows you to pursue a project that you design yourself in one or more non-U.S. countries that you've never been to. And the only requirements are that you stick to the project, you stay out for the full year, you go by yourself, and you don't affiliate with any institutions. And so my project, or the project that the 21-year-old version of me dreamed up, having never really left the southeastern United States, was to document community life, human community life, in some of the most far-flung places I could imagine. So some of that was just looking at a map and going, well, that looks far away. Some of it was based on a specific sort of geographical or, or cultural reason. But the first place that my poor parents had to, to you know, put me on a plane to and wave goodbye was Tierra del Fuego, which is all the way down at the bottom of South America, only 500 miles from Antarctica. And near to there is the in the just to the east in the ocean are, are the Falkland Islands. And the Falklands struck me as like that would be perfect. That's that's very much in line with this mission. It's geographically isolated. It's also culturally isolated because uh, the people there are very resolutely British, culturally speaking. And they're not very many of them. There's about three thousand civilians, about the same number of soldiers. And the archipelago is larger than you would think in terms of numbers of islands. There are two main islands where most of the people live, but then there are almost 800 other islands surrounding them in this little sort of this little string of pearls. Some of these islands are so small that uh, you can you could walk around them in five minutes. But they've preserved uh, a version of the islands as they were before people turned up there. And the extraordinary thing about the Falklands, or one of the many, is that uh, so far as we know, they are just about the only place in the entire Western Hemisphere that was discovered by Europeans. There's no evidence that anyone has found so far to suggest that Amerindian people ever visited the Falklands or were aware of their existence. And so when whalers and sealers and people like Darwin, who turned up in the 1830s, visited the islands, they experienced these moments of sort of first contact with the wildlife in these moments that had receded into the dim and distant past for most other animals on earth, on land. I dropped into this situation and I was interested in the people that who I met there, but I went to go visit some of these outer islands because I'd heard there were penguins there and I didn't I wasn't interested in birds really, but I thought you shouldn't pass up a chance to see penguins in the wild. And I went and I, I saw penguins, and the penguins kind of look at you like, yeah, whatever. You know, as long as you don't directly threaten them, they just act like you're not there. But I also met these strange birds that I'd never even heard of. Or, or seen pictures of that were like a combination of a hawk and a crow. They were brownish black in color. They like to run along the ground as much as they like to fly. They had these big, dark, searching eyes, and they came right up to me, staring at me as if they had every right to be there, or as if they had just as much right to be there as I did. And they wondered if I might be useful in some way. And that <laughs> was so contrary to what my idea of what wild animals were supposed to be like, that I couldn't really get them out of my mind. These birds are called striated caracaras, or in the islands are called Johnny Rooks. And when I got back to the one town in the Falklands called Stanley, 
I asked around about them and I met a British ornithologist who, as it happened, was about to sail to some of the, the most remote of the outer islands to do a survey of breeding pairs of these birds, which had never been done. So I pestered him until he took me along. And the following couple of months were this sort of baptism by fire into the world of the, some of the most amazing birds on earth. There aren't as many species in the Falklands as there are in places like the Amazon, but there are albatrosses and penguins and burrowing petrels and little tiny wrens that don't fly very much. There are flightless ducks. And then there are these caracaras. And being immersed in this world just changed my idea about what the world was and what it could be like and what it once was like. I had the same questions about these birds, the caracaras, that Darwin did, as it turned out, which were, one, what are they? Two, why are they only here? And three, why do they act like this? And those three questions uh, are the MacGuffin of this book, because Darwin had wondered about this, but he never figured it out and set it aside as he went on to other things. But I thought, maybe I can solve this. I can answer this question now. I mean, I have tools at my disposal that Darwin couldn't have dreamed of. Google Earth and genetic analysis and you know, a much richer understanding of, I mean, Darwin didn't even know about plate tectonics. The book does answer this question, but it, it does it in the way that I was able to, to discover their journey over time by just hearing through them, almost like through a keyhole into this much larger story that just opened and opened. And so the book condenses this 25 year journey for me into a, you know, in reasonable 300 pages <laughs> of uh, adventures and misadventures and science, travel, natural history. Uh, you meet a lot of interesting people along the way, some of whom are living, some of whom were alive in the 19th century, some of whom were alive much longer ago than that. It's a 25-year journey for you, but it's a multiple thousand-year journey for the Caracaras and also for those that have accompanied the Caracaras evolutionarily along the way. And you bring that sweep into the book. We'll be getting into all of that as soon as we come back from our break. But for right now, let me remind people that you're Jonathan Myberg and Although oftentimes we would be talking to you about your music with bands like Shearwater and Loma, and you've been on the show before talking about that. Today, we're talking about your recent book from Knopf Publishers called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. And so you're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in just a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Jonathan Myberg. He's been on the show before talking about his music. He is the front man of the band Shearwater, and he also plays with the band Loma. But today we're talking about his recent book, which was published by Knopf, called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. 
So before the break, we were talking about your being on this Thomas Watson Fellowship and your intention at that time, fresh out of college, was to go to the most remote places of the earth and to look at human social culture there in those extreme locations. And then you mentioned going to Tierra del Fuego, hitching a ride to the Falklands, going out to some of the outer islands of the Falklands to look at some penguins. And then you come across these weird birds called striated caracaras, and they begin to stare you right in the face and look at you and walk up to you and act as if they're asking you, how are you useful to me? And what, <laughs> yes. one of the things that I love about that is is that you went looking for human culture, but you happened upon, and this these are my words, not yours, so feel free to restate it, but it almost seems like you happened on a human-like culture in that extreme space, a social culture that you didn't expect that fascinated you. Is that too strong a way of putting it, or is that accurate? No, that's quite right. The thing that really struck me about these birds is that they immediately seem more conscious than most animals you've ever met. And the fact that, you know, they're not domesticated. They're, they haven't lived with human beings for thousands of years. This that one species. This is just how they are. And there is something undeniably and uncannily human-like about them, even though, evolutionarily speaking, we're not very closely related. The last time that you and I had a, a common ancestor with a bird was about 300 million years ago. And if you add up our separate journeys since that time, really you're talking about 600 million years of evolutionary time that lie between us and them. And yet you can forge a connection with them that is really strong. And I've probably used this word already, but it keeps coming back to me, uncanny. One of the parts of the book visits falconry parks and zoos in England where for reasons that I explained in the book, which are uh, pretty entertaining, but would take a long time to go into right now, a small but thriving population of striated caracaras lives in captivity. So there are people there who are falconers, zookeepers, who have day-to-day -day constant contact with these birds over many years, which is something no one has with them in the wild. And the relationships that are developed between these falconers and these birds are extraordinary, very different from the relationships they have with other birds of prey, hawks, eagles, the falcons that are more familiar to us, like peregrine falcons and kestrels and merlins, this kind of thing. Those birds, for the most part, are very rote in their behaviors. They want to do the same thing over and over again. They're not interested in being friends with you in particular. They need to be hungry in order to do any kind of flying demonstration. Readers who've read H's for Hawk may remember that Helen MacDonald in that book keeps a goshawk. And as part of the process of acculturating that bird to being with her, she takes it through a process called manning, which is like breaking a horse. Basically, you just try to convince this bird that there is no way that it's getting away from you, that it has to accept you as a fact of its life. Well, these caracaras don't do any of this. They don't like to be trained in the way that falcons usually respond to training. In fact, they get very frustrated with it. They don't like doing the same things over and over again. They need puzzles and games. They want to interact with you whether they're hungry or not. And they remember you over many years, even if they haven't seen you before. One bird who I talk about named Tina, who lived in Devon in a falconry park called Woodlands Family Leisure Park, with the, formed this partnership with a falconer named Jeff Pearson, which lasted many, many years. And Jeff was able to get Tina to do things that are just way beyond the bounds of what birds of prey are considered to be able to do as far as mental abilities. Tina could solve problems. She could uh, distinguish shapes and colors and demonstrate that distinction. Yeah, he could even throw a set of stuffed animals over his shoulder and say, go get Miss Piggy. And she would jump down, run across the ground, pick up Miss Piggy and come back. Or 
when she'd picked up Miss Piggy, he could then say, wait, I've changed my mind. Go get Nemo. Instead, she would put down Miss Piggy, get Nemo, and come back, drop it in a bucket, and get a food reward. You would be waiting forever to get an eagle to do this kind of thing, or an owl. And this difference in the minds of the caracaras from all other birds of prey was part of what really drew me into them, because it's just you could tell that they've evolved a mind that is to some degree like ours, enough to be able to communicate with us over this vast evolutionary distance. And I thought that was just fascinating. And it was even more fascinating to me that was more or less unrecognized. Well, this is what strikes me about what you're talking about here. So you mentioned a moment ago this concept of domestication, and that's where we're literally breaking animals from their wildness and adapting them to live alongside humans. And so probably the best examples of that would be like dogs or cats, where they form almost parasocial relationships with humans. They still have their own dog thing or cat thing, but adapt themselves from their wildness to domestic life. But what you're talking about here seems to be something different. These birds, these striated caracaras, were not involved at all in interacting with humans over the centuries. But then once we showed up, it's almost like they just adapted their already existing socialization with each other to us, and they were curious about us. Now, am I hearing that right, or have I got it wrong? Yeah, they take you into their tribe, basically. And this is not true only of just striated caracaras, but there are other caracara species in mainland South America, uh, which are less rare and which have adapted to human habitation very well. There is a small bird called a chimango caracara, which lives mostly in southern South America, Argentina, and Chile, that's so common around human settlements that they're basically ignored. Uh, there's a saying in Argentina, no gastes polvora en chimango, which means don't waste your ammunition on a chimango. You know, it's just something sort of small and, and worthless. But these birds are extraordinarily intelligent, and they've managed to adapt to our habits and thrived, which when you mentioned dogs and cats, dogs and cats are a funny example in some ways as compared to, say, cows, which, I mean, cows really were captured by human beings. Their wild ancestors no longer even exist. But dogs and cats chose us multiple times in some cases. There were some wolves. This, like, I always wondered about this. Did someone just go out and tackle a wolf one day and say, you're my dog now? It seems unlikely. What seems to have happened is that there were some wolves who realized that humans were a good source of food. And the ones that had a temperament to be able to deal with this kind of started coming in and hanging out with us. And people took that further in terms of domestication and breeding them specifically. But the first decision had to come from the wolves. And I think about that all the time. So the first decision had to come from the wolves is an interesting phrase to use in the context of these birds that we're talking about, the caracaras in their varieties. Because what you're telling me is that these birds, even amongst their species, they tend to have evolved to the point where they also could make that sort of choice, where they could look at a human being like you. And as you said earlier, that sort of question pop up where they're looking at you and you know, how are you useful to me? And I want us to flesh that out a little bit for the listeners, because useful means they will literally steal your keys or they'll tug the cap off of your head or they'll go and they'll rustle through your kitchenware while you're out in the bush. I, what does useful mean to a bird in this context? Well, they don't seem to know either exactly. They just know you're something new. And this curiosity that they have about this attraction to, you might even call it like neophilia, is to anything that they haven't seen before is a very dangerous trait to have, but it also can be very fruitful, as we know, because it's one of the hallmarks of our species. And I'm thinking of one thing that's, that's interesting about them evolutionarily, I should say, is that recent genetic research has shown that the falcon family is not very closely related to hawks 
and eagles and owls and other birds of prey, their closest relatives are actually parrots. And when you think of a parrot, you think of a, a, a bird that people have, have that's chosen or has been chosen by people as a companion now for centuries. And I feel like you can almost see the connection between the parrots and the falcon's shared ancestry in the caracaras better than you can in the birds that people call in, this, in scare quotes, true falcons, which are the ones that are more familiar to us in the Northern world. But that's just one lineage that sort of came out of South America and occupied the Northern world in a relatively recent time, geologically speaking. But the shared home of both parrots and falcons, I think, and I make a case for this in the book, is Antarctica. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Jonathan Myberg. He's been on the show before talking about the bands that he plays with, Shearwater and Loma, but today we're talking about his recent book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. Now, just a moment ago, you said that you made a case in the book, A Most Remarkable Creature, that the shared territory where evolution happened for these various birds that now are distinct to us was in Antarctica. And I think when most people might have heard that, they would think Antarctica is a frozen wasteland. What is this man talking about? So help us understand what you're talking about. Well, this is the thing about Antarctica is that this the version of it that we think of that's covered in ice is actually not even the majority of what it's been like since its existence as a continent. But long, long ago, as many people know, all of the continents reunited in one great landmass. That landmass separated into two supercontinents, which get called Laurasia in the north and Gondwana in the south. These two continents then split up over time to become the continents as we know them today. Antarctica was part of this southern continent of, of Gondwana. And the other pieces of land that were joined onto it include what we now call South America, Africa, India, New Zealand, Australia, New Caledonia. And you can still see echoes of this ancient association in the, the plants and animals that live there now. But Antarctica, interestingly, was already at the bottom of the world, basically where it is now, at the time of the great Cretaceous extinctions that killed off most of the big dinosaurs. And this is when this meteor hits the Yucatan about 66 million years ago. And there's this global holocaust and there's acid rain and it's night for months on end and it gets really cold and then warm again. And people have focused on this cataclysmic event, which is only discovered fairly recently, like within the last few decades. But the, the thing is that even though this event was very terrible, you look around you, there are a lot of living things in the world today, and every single one of them has an ancestor that survived that. So it didn't wipe the slate clean of the world. And in Antarctica, there's some evidence that the effects were less than they were in the northern world by quite a bit. Because the asteroid hit the Earth at an angle, it really hosed North America and the northern world. But there are some pollen records from places like Tasmania that go back a long way that suggest that the effects were not as great in the Southern Hemisphere. Antarctica at that time was warm. It was covered in forest. Much of the forest was something like the forests um, that you see now today in Southern Argentina, New Zealand, New Caledonia. The Antarctic forests basically still exist. They're just not in Antarctica anymore. But we have no reason to think it wasn't filled with animals. In fact, it's even possible that the big dinosaurs kept on living down there for a lot longer, and we won't know until the ice goes away. So Antarctica may have played a part in saving the living world from the effects of that asteroid impact. And so the ancestors of the falcons and parrots, I think, lived in this warm Antarctica. And it stayed warm after the Cretaceous extinctions for another 30 million years, at least, 
which is the time when the connection, the slender connection between South America and Antarctica, which you can still see really when you look at a map, there's this sort of tendril of land that curls up off of Antarctica that almost seems like it's reaching towards South America. That was once closed. When that finally opened about 30 million years ago, it created this Antarctic circumpolar current, which meant that cold water could circle all the way around Antarctica, around the entire world. And that kept the warm water that was in the rest of the oceans out of Antarctica and started to cool down the continent. And this big freeze began that took a long time. There were still forests in Antarctica as recently as like 3 million years ago. So it's only really frozen over and become a place where life on land can't really be in relatively recent times. This is one thing that I want to make sure that listeners really understand about your book, A Most Remarkable Creature. Like you talk about this as a 25-year journey for you, but you just mentioned timescales of 30 million years and more. And when we're talking about these creatures, particularly creatures like the striated caracaras, one of the things that I think maybe listeners may have heard but may not fully grasp is how close these kind of creatures are to creatures from long ago like the dinosaurs. And I wonder if you could help to make some of those connections for us. Well, birds are dinosaurs. There's no distinction between them. And the more that we learn about dinosaurs, the more they seem very bird-like, when in fact, it's really the other way around. Uh, most dinosaurs had feathers. Feathers were not a recent innovation. Even T-Rex may have had feathers, although probably not as an adult. But there are new discoveries coming about what dinosaurs were actually like all the time. So birds basically are the dinosaurs that lived. They're the descendants of the dinosaurs that lived. So we, as I make the point I make in the book is that the number of dinosaur species that has been, have been discovered by paleontologists so far is around the eight or 900 species number. Now, what defines a species is a separate question, and there's plenty of room for debate about this. But there are about 10,000 living species of birds accepted today. So in a way, we live in the golden age of the dinosaurs. The common house sparrows are probably the most numerous theropod dinosaurs that ever lived. And so when we're thinking about this connection to the past in that way, I, I think that a lot of people look at things like the climate crisis that's happening right now, and they're saying, wow, we're changing the world in a way that it's never changed before. Humans are having such an effect on the environment and on the planet. It's interesting to me to think in terms of geologic time. And I wonder, you and I have talked about this before on the show, but I'm wondering how looking at a bird like the striated caracara, knowing the deep history that it has, the connection that it has to these ancient millions of years ago times, how you begin to think about things like geologic change and the effect that we have or the significance of humans here in this time. Yeah, the current global heating that's going on can be very directly attributed to human action. So that's not really up for debate. But what's also not up for debate is that the earth has changed a great deal in the past in ways such that we would almost not recognize it. There was a snowball earth that was frozen from pole to pole at one point. There have been versions of the earth as it was at the time of the Cretaceous extinction where there were no ice caps whatsoever. I'm pretty sanguine about the overall future of life on earth. But the problem that's most pressing for us is that we're making the world into a place that's going to be very difficult for us to live in. And one of the things I admire about the Caracaras is that when you look at their journey, and for instance, one, one thing that you, could, you might suspect about striated Caracaras is that if I'm saying, okay, Caracaras, the falcons, the falcon family came from Antarctica, maybe these are just some that just got up into the, the tip of South America and just stayed, and they didn't go any further north. And that might be a plausible suggestion, except for if you use genetic techniques to investigate their ancestries, what you find, and I, I've elaborated on this in the book as a sort of a, a pathway or you know, these branching paths through time that we examine in the book, their lineage shows instead something quite different. It shows that they're, they've radiated throughout their continent 
and made an entire circuit of it. And in fact, their nearest relatives live in the high Andes. And DNA analysis allows you not only to see how related two species are, but when they diverged in time. And that's really interesting because you can then take these maps, essentially, these genetic maps, map them onto a time scale, and then think about what we know about what was going on in the world at that time. And you can try to do some detective work and see if you can pinpoint what a cause might be for what mechanisms, what events might have caused these lineages to diverge in these ways at this time. One of the things that we know is that South America was, after it separated from Antarctica, was a separate continent from all other continents for the next 30 million years, kind of like Australia is now, and didn't join up with North America until between about three and five million years ago, we think. So the two Americas are really not very closely related to one another at all, geologically or biologically. And when they connected, it was an event that one paleontologist called one of the most extraordinary events in the whole history of life, because two continents that had basically almost separate planets of all the life that had evolved since the Cretaceous extinctions, both of them been since that time, suddenly met. And animals, plants, fungi, microorganisms flowed between them in this process that's called the Great American Biotic Interchange, which changed the face of both continents biologically and continues to do so today. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jonathan Myberg. He's been on the show before to talk about his band Shearwater, where he's the front man and guitarist. But today we're talking about his recent book, A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. We'll be back in just a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these kinds of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Jonathan Myberg. Longtime listeners will remember that he's been on the show before talking about his band Shearwater. But today we're talking about his recent book called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. We're talking about caracaras, which are birds that Jonathan has studied for the last 25 years as a result of a fellowship that he took that led him to the ends of the earth and to the Falkland Islands, where in particular one species of these caracaras caracaras live. There's a lot going on in this conversation that just really has my brain buzzing, and I want to try and draw a couple of threads together. 
Way, way back, 400 some years ago, a man by the name of Rene Descartes looked at the world and said, I think, therefore I am, and was talking about his ability to cognize the world as the thing that secured his own existence. I'm aware that Rene Descartes also looked at the animals and basically saw them as the equivalent of little wind-up toys, that they didn't have the cognition that, that we have. But right before the break, we were talking about climate change. We were talking about the fact that humans are absolutely involved in the current climate change, but that the the earth has experienced vast sways of environment and climate through the millennia and through through the millions of year cycles that we're talking about. What fascinates me about this is that a bird like the striated caracara has lived through so many more utterly horrendous shifts in the climate than we have. And they are social beings, and they are beings that have this kind of curiosity that seems almost human. And so I'm wondering, Jonathan Myberg, what can we as humans in this moment of crisis learn about surviving and adaptability from a bird like the striated caracara? Well, I was just talking about the Great American Biotic Interchange when these animals from South America and North America traveled between the continents and tried their hand in a new environment. Some of them succeeded and did very well, like the possums and armadillos and porcupines that live in North America now. Those all walked up from South America. In South America, many northern larger mammals were very successful indeed, including camels, which we now call in South America vicuñas and guanacos, which are the wild ancestors of uh, llamas and alpacas. And even tapirs, those strange sort of like pig with a trunk things you may remember from the beginning of 2001, those live in South America, even though they came from North America, they died out here. And then also big cats, jaguars, things like this. South America, at the, when the two continents joined, was home to a host of these other really strange animals, which mostly don't exist anymore. Giant ground sloths, glyptodonts, which were relatives of armadillos that were like these sort of big armored lawnmowers that trundled through the grassland, chewing up grasses. Even things like there was a saber-toothed marsupial that's <laughs> no longer with us. But one thing I wanted to get back to, Dave, actually, is there's a character, one of my favorite characters in the book is a, is a Jesuit named Bernabe Kobo, who appears, I think, around in chapter 9 or 10. And because Darwin, when he visited the Americas, was really perplexed by the difference between South and North America, but he didn't know why they were so different because he didn't know about the movement of the continents. But Bernabe Cobo, writing in the 1500s, was wondering the very same thing. He was in Mexico, which is part of North America, and then he was in Peru, which is part of South America. And the contradiction between the animals in these places, the fact that the animals were so different, vexed him to no end because he had a theological problem to deal with, which was that he lived in a world where all the animals had to have issued from Noah's Ark after the Great Flood and found their way to the places that we find them now. And he just couldn't grapple with the discontinuities in why there were some animals in some places and why other animals in other places. And it absolutely drove him nuts. Eventually, he had to decide that there had been a miracle of some kind that allowed the animals not only to be taken to Noah at the time of the flood, but also after the floodwaters receded, had, that they had been taken back to the places that they came from. But to him, this was like an Occam's razor type problem because he said, otherwise, you, you have to account for so many miraculous interventions by the Lord that it's he said like beyond the course that nature usually takes. And remember also that the Jesuits in South America were certainly not perfect in their relationships with the Amerindian people who'd been already living there for thousands of years, but they did advocate for them as people with souls which was in itself a revolutionary position to take at the time. 
because there were people who were arguing that Amerindian people were not human, did not have souls, and could be treated like livestock. What's interesting to me about the story that you just told about this Jesuit, Bernabe Cobo, is the the whole notion that he was trying to view what we might call nascent science through a narrative that preceded the science. So he tried to find evidence that was matching with, and he was filtering out evidence that didn't match with this master story that he had about Noah's Ark. And that makes me think about the ways in which stories sometimes can get in the way of us seeing what's in front of us. And I wonder what you think about that. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that you come away with, but I, I don't think he was dumb. I think he was quite an intelligent and observant man. He was just starting from the wrong place. And I feel certain that there are going to be things that we feel just as certain about today that we're going to shake our heads and think, what were we thinking if we managed to survive as a species in, for the next couple hundred years? Well, this is one of the things that you brought up here in our conversation, but you also mention in your book, A Most Remarkable Creature, you're treading the same ground and in some ways even asking the same question that Charles Darwin asked a couple hundred years ago. You have different resources and maybe different stories that you've told yourself, but I wonder, as you thought about Darwin's approach to the striated caracara and how you thought about your own approach, because it's easy to look at that and say, well, he didn't have these things and now I have these things. How much better will my story be? But I also recognize that you had great humility in approaching the whole task of trying to take on this question. And so I want to kind of ask you about that balance of I have new resources, but I also know I need to stay humble. Talk to me about that balance. Well, one of the most important things about science, and this I think frustrates people sometimes, is that it you have to not only be willing to be wrong, but except that you're going to be wrong most of the time. At its best, science is not about the quest for the immovable truth. Science is about trying to arrive closer to the truth, but in a way that an, you know, an asymptote tends to infinity in, in calculus or something. Like You're never really going to entirely get there. And what science at its best is humble, is imaginative, and, it, and accepts new information rather than rejecting it. Now, that's not how it's always practiced, but it is the goal. And Darwin was fascinated by the Caracaras, but he also called them false eagles who ill become so high a rank. And Caracaras in general, actually, have been treated with a little bit of distaste by scientists, especially by ornithologists who really like birds of prey. And that's not their fault. That's because of the qualities that we like to project onto birds of prey. They get used as symbols of, you think of the martial eagles of Rome or Byzantium or Germany or the United States. We project all these qualities onto birds of prey, and caracaras are very resolute in not having all of them <laughs> or, in, or in having a different version of them. They're flexible. They're adaptable. They managed to survive in a version of South America where most of the large animals went extinct. Now, part of that was because of the Great American Biotic Interchange. Part of it was because of the arrivals of humans, as we talked about earlier in the program. When people turn up in the Americas, most of the large mammals go extinct. Why this happens is not entirely certain. Climate seems to play some role in this, but climate had changed a lot many times before people arrived without everything going extinct in this way. And it seems to me that people played a very large role in changing the animal, in changing the fauna of these places. And 
there used to be a lot more meat running around in the Americas. There were bison and mastodons, and there were an opportunity for scavenging birds, much like you might imagine, say, in East Africa today, where you still have places like the Serengeti, where you know you have large vultures and dying zebras that are killed by lions and this kind of thing. And caracaras, as scavengers, would have been part of this. Many scavenging birds went extinct around this time. Giant birds called teratorns, some of the largest flying birds we even know about. One of them may have had a wingspan of as much as 25 feet. These went extinct when the large animals of South America went extinct. But the caracaras, not all of them, they're extinct caracaras too, but some of them survived. And I can't help but think that the reason they survived was because of their flexibility, their willingness to learn, their willingness to change the way they interacted with their world. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Jonathan Myberg. He's been on the show before talking about his band, Shearwater. Today, we're talking about his recent book called A Most Remarkable Creature, The Hidden Life and Epic Journey of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. Well, I've mentioned at several points in this conversation that you are a person who is the front man of a rock and roll band called Shearwater. You mentioned earlier in the conversation that you were an English major, but here just now you've been talking about science. And I wonder if that's not another point of connection that you see with some of these naturalists that lived 150, 200 or more years ago. There was no specialization in science the way that we think about it now, where you go to multiple graduate degrees and you come out a scientist. Instead, these were people that were simply curious about the world and had a certain artistic way almost of thinking about it. In fact, the cover of your book, A Most Remarkable Creature, features a drawing from one of the naturalists that we're talking about. And I I wonder about that connection, that affinity that you may feel because you are a scientist who is connected with the humanities and with this more kind of humanist approach rather than a rigorous scientific approach. Well, as you say, the disciplines didn't always used to be as separate as they are now. Now, some of that was because this kind of thinking was strictly a province of rich people. You mustn't forget, Darwin was a rich kid. He came from a family with land, with money, and his presumed future was going to be as a country priest who, you know, naturalist wasn't a profession. Being a biologist wasn't a profession. The word scientist hadn't even come into vogue, really, when he was a young person. He was just a promising young guy with an interest in beetles in the natural world. And the captain of the Beagle, Fitzroy, wanted a friend that he could talk to who wasn't a member of his crew. And he tried to get some of his buddies to come with him on this on the Beagle's mission, which was to do surveying in the southern part of South America for the Admiralty. And Spetroy was especially afraid because the previous captain of the Beagle on this same mission had committed suicide. So he thought that he might be better off if he had somebody he could talk to. And he said, maybe a gentleman naturalist would be fine, i.e. somebody who had enough money that they could be interested in the natural world and not have to worry about where they were going to make their money from. And that's what Darwin was. Darwin took advantage of the opportunity in an extraordinary way and used his imagination in ways that changed the way that we thought about the natural world. But if you're talking about sort of the economic circumstances that produced him, Darwin was no ordinary guy. I mean, he'd be, if you took, I don't know, like a modern analog exactly. I I would think about someone like Elon Musk saying, I think I'll start a rocket company, something like that. Yeah. A little bit that way. I mean, the the people are rich now in a way that they've never been rich before. So that the analogs really aren't one for one. It would, but it would be more like the heir to some fortune that's not a gigantic fortune, but enough that he's never really going to have to work. In particular, this is the guy that Darwin was, and Darwin got some things wrong. Darwin, when he was when he's first writing the Voyage of the Beagle, you have to remember he's twenty two years old. If he walked in the room today, he just looked like this kid. 
It's important to remember that human knowledge does not advance at an even pace across all fronts. We're more interested in things that make us money or that give someone power over someone else. Not all that is known is written. Not all that is written is known. Knowledge gets lost. People learn things and then that knowledge disappears. And so it's not as if we're sitting on top of this ever-growing mountain of knowledge. It's more like everybody has to climb the mountain for themselves. And a good degree of humility, I think, is required in order to do the kind of imaginative work that it takes to find new knowledge. Because often important things, as I say in the book, lurk in the guise of the unimportant. And my, the character, Julia Clark, a paleontologist who appears in the book a couple of times, says that I think that this idea that the world is known prevents people from committing to a life of discovery. And I couldn't agree with her more. The world is not all contained within the internet. And one of the things she talks about in her own work is, the, is finding a fascinating paucity of knowledge on a subject, just a lacuna, a silence, because people figure something's not really all that important. That's where you need to look and trying to find those places, seeing those places where people aren't looking and looking closer is the real work of science and art. And both require imagination, both require humility, both require skill and reflection and time. And both also require money if people are going to do it. And as a society, that's something that we need to consider, that there's very important knowledge to be gained, to be learned about what lives in the world with us, how the world itself works. And not all of it is going to make us money. It's not all going to be a rocket company. There's not going to be a value add. There's not going to be a market-based incentive for this to exist. It's going to instead have to come from a deeper, almost spiritual conviction that learning about where we are is a worthy thing. Well, and this is one thing that came up for me and really just hit me like a ton of bricks when I was reading your book, A Most Remarkable Creature. You talked earlier about this person that you were there on the Rio River with, this scientist named Sean, and you go to lengths to talk to us and tell us Sean's story, how he adjusted his own research, because as he was interested in things, he kept saying, but I won't be able to have a career in that, and no one will be interested in that, no one will let me publish in that, again and again and again, because people are only interested in things that might be valuable in the market. And so he eventually lands on on studying this relationship between these social wasps that form these huge nests and the caracaras that manage to steal the larvae out of these huge nests. And that's partly how you get connected to him. But it was so poignant to me and so heartbreaking to realize that he had other passions. This was the closest that he could get to what his passions were that would fit a marketplace. Exactly. And that's where imagination often comes in for scientists. You have to be very wily about this. You have to say, I, I think there's a conception, a popular conception that there's this army of scientists out there studying animals in the natural world just to see what they are. Those people do exist. There are very few of them, and they're scrapping for funding all the time. The people getting the big money who have an easy job of getting research funding are in pharmaceuticals or in uh, material science, or they make weapons or this kind of thing. That This other group of people who are really trying to find out who the creatures are that we share the world with is a very small and very determined group of people that I have just nothing but admiration for. Sean luckily gets to go investigate red-throated caracaras because of the story this very intriguing story that they may somehow secrete a wasp repellent. And so the tempting thought of this wasp repellent that you might be able to discover on this bird is enough for him to get funding and have a mission 
in mind. Now, Sean doesn't think this is very likely. What he finds, and I'll leave this for the book for you to read, is something beyond what he had uh, ever imagined. Well, you mentioned a moment ago the sort of connection both for the scientist and the artist to look at the kind of shadowy places, the lacuna, the places where people are not telling the stories. And that's where you need to go with both humility and imagination. And so as we're coming to the conclusion of our conversation, I think listeners would think I was remiss if I didn't ask you about the other part of your life, your your musical life, both with Shearwater and with your other band, Loma. How are things going with those projects and what can we be expecting from you in the near future? Well, things are going well. I mean, luckily, the process of making music is much more fun than the process of writing, which Douglas Adams said, writing is easy. You just stare at a piece of paper until your forehead bleeds. I love the research for this book. Writing it was a struggle every day. I never felt like I had a day writing this book where I thought, oh, man, I just owned it today. <laughs> you know, That was great. Whereas making music, you have these little moments of joy and discovery constantly and often with other people, which in living through the pandemic has become all the more poignant. I really miss being in a room with other people playing music. But that said, we've been able to do what we can remotely and occasionally meeting carefully. Um, I've got a new Shearwater record, the first in six years that we're about a week away from finishing. Uh, and I'm terribly excited about it. And then Loma is going to start a new record a little later on this year. So there'll be more music coming from both of them. And I'm thankful to have these things in my life, uh, even though music, as many people know, is not really remunerative <laughs> for most people who practice it, uh, even as a profession. And like Patreon, for instance, has really kept been able to keep me going and get these records made, even though we work with record labels, this kind of thing. But to me, both music and learning about a subject like the Caracaras, who, who, who were the lens through which saw this much greater story, who opened this to me, are both part of the process of just getting out of your own mind and getting out of the swirl of thoughts that are always going around and around in your mind that kind of keep you constrained within the world that you think you're in. The world is much bigger than you think. I will die not understanding the world, but I can at least try to understand more and to get as much of it into my understanding as I can, and then to communicate what I can find to others, hopefully in a way that's entertaining or interesting, or that, that brings some things to light that might change the way other people think about it. Well, Jonathan Myberg, you mentioned that you found the writing of this book, A Most Remarkable Creature, to be a struggle. I will say as a reader, it was the exact opposite of that. It was a joy to read. It was so encompassing in its scope and so beautifully written. And I'm so grateful that you took the time away from your music to devote to this subject. I learned a ton from it. I know that my listeners will learn a ton from it. I am so grateful that you took the time to write it, but I'm also especially grateful you took the time to talk about it with me and my listeners today. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you, Dave. A splendid time is guaranteed for all. We've been speaking today with Jonathan Myberg. Longtime listeners will recall that he's been on the show before. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. 
Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.